Verse 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And there's more about angels throughout Hebrews. You can read in many other passages concerning, uh, from the beginning, that cosmic conflict that is between angels and demons. Let me just lay a few things out on the table here. We've already talked about spiritual warfare briefly. Ephesians 6, you are engaged in spiritual warfare. And we like to speak of spiritual warfare in a very abstract way, don't we? Because it's easier. We don't have to get specific. We don't have to highlight our enemy. The principles of spiritual warfare that you can outline there in Ephesians 6 are, first of all, you need to be able. You must be able. You must find your ability in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might is not um, talking about physical strength. It's talking about your very ability to, having done all, stand firm. The only way you are able to engage in spiritual warfare in a meaningful, effective way is if you are standing firm in the Lord. Okay, so be able. Second, you need to be aware. You need to be aware that you are, first of all, in spiritual conflict. 
Uh, the Christian life is not a beach on which to sun yourself, as nice as that would be. I'm sure in the new heavens and new earth of righteousness, there will be uh, plenty of beaches and uh, plenty of, uh, of, of a sense of that peace and that tranquility that uh, a beach can give. If you don't find that at a beach, think of what you do like um, that, that provides that sort of feeling of peace and tranquility. But that's not our state. It is a battleground where we will sacrificially spend ourselves until the Lord Jesus comes again, if it be his will, or until we die. That can be exhausting sometimes. And so that's where you must find your ability in the Lord, not in yourself. That's where you must be aware of the cost. You must be aware, first of all, of the reality that you're in a war, the conflict that you're in. You need to be aware of your adversary, the devil. If you are seeking God's word and you're walking in Christ, you definitely will be aware of him. He can manifest in particular ways. He can manifest in um, holding you up and holding you back in your spiritual growth. He can manifest in distracting you from gathering with God's people. He can manifest in um, causing you to have other priorities in your life apart from looking to Christ. He can manifest in tempting you with a range of sins that the scriptures are so clear about. He's there. We are not unaware of his schemes. You need to be aware of your conflict, of, um, of your combatant, the one who you face. But above all, you must be aware of your commander, your commander, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we've sung these wonderful songs, these songs of triumph, these songs of victory, these are declarations that we stand under his banner. What we were seeing this morning, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He cannot lose. And if you are in him, though you lose some things in life, you will not lose ultimately. What profits you if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? And what does it profit? If you continue in this life and you lose much but gain eternity? It's so worth it. So be aware of your commander. And then finally, there you can, you can outline in Ephesians 6, you need to be armed. He gives us the tools for spiritual war there. He, he gives us a very clear guide as to what we need to arm ourselves with. I encourage you to spend some time thinking, praying, and meditating over that. But as this is a spiritual war and we are physical beings, we have to be aware of a battle that is ongoing in the heavenlies. Angels are real. Yeah, angels are real. I, I've encountered Christians who um, will, will say, oh, they, you know, they, um, they'll, they'll talk rather dismissively of angels. Oh, you know, he, 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 Sky, he said he felt like he was helped in some way by an angel. You know, and then they, I've seen people roll their eyes and think like, <laughs> thinking, whoa, you are perilously close to doing what the scripture says, you know, in, in terms of blaspheming uh, all that you do not understand. There's some things that you do not understand that I do not understand. Um, maybe, maybe we know the presence of angels at times. Maybe we don't. I, I dare say that uh, there are angels among us, seen and unseen on a daily basis. 
We'll come to that in a moment. Demons are real. Now, there's, there's a few extremes here. There's the extreme, I find, that's kind of like that of the Sadducees. You see, the Sadducees, they denied everything spiritual. They denied angels. They denied demons. They denied resurrection. They denied everything spiritual. And you, you kind of begin to think, what's the point? What, what do you guys believe? Um, what, was there a faithful belief in God? There was no belief in life after death. So you're kind of thinking this is, this is extreme theological liberalism. This is almost, it was cultural Judaism perhaps to a degree, but um, they had a, a view of, of God. They had a view of Yahweh, but they, um, that, that they denied so much of what the scriptures have to show us. Some people say that's why they were sad, you see. Um, but the Pharisees, the Pharisees, um, they, they definitely believed in angels and, and demons, but of course they, they missed some of the bigger pictures. They, they were legalists. I think, I think in our Christian circles, we often have something along these lines. You have, you have on one end, you have the Sadducees. There's a lot of denial of spiritual warfare. There's a lot of denial of angels and demons. We don't like to talk about it. If someone talks about the angelic or the demonic, there's for some reason immediately red flags. Um, with some, they think, oh, what's that about? And, and that's because on the other side, you do have some extremes of um, the mysticism. And in the Judaism of Jesus's day, uh, and, and even in the, the Greek religions, there was definitely a lot of mystical cult elements. There was worship of angels. The scriptures speak against the worship of angels. Uh, there was a lot of uh, importance granted to angels that... Hebrews deals with, it's quite clear that there was an issue where some people were uh, diminishing Christ to the level of an angel. And there are people today who say that Jesus, that the Mormons will say that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer. Um, there are people who will say um, the Jehovah's Witnesses will equate Jesus with the archangel Michael. So you have... That diminishing of Jesus to the level of an angel, we'll touch on that in just a couple of moments, but there's extremes, that denial of the spiritual and then the, um, the, the perversion of the spiritual. And then there's that extreme where angels are all around us and we, we speak of them in such a way that um, is borderline psychotic and, 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 and demons are everywhere and every inconvenience is demonic and every, there's a demon under every rock and around every corner. And uh, I remember, guys, I was one time doing evangelism and, and I approached this woman and was asking a question. It was just an honest question uh, that we were asking every single person who we were passing by. Um, if you were to die today, what do you think would happen? That's the, that was the startup question, right? Um, and the woman immediately, she took a step back from me, pointed at me and shouted, I will not die today in Jesus' name. I said, and I said, I didn't say you would. Um, I, God forbid that that happens. But if you did, um, I, I take it you're a Christian. Like, what, 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 what would you say? I, and she said, it is not my portion. I'm not going to die. And so, and so she thought I was speaking this into existence. And perhaps there was a demonic entity that was maybe channeling itself through me to, to um, affect this, this tragic occurrence of her untimely death. And I, this went on until it was too awkward. I was trying to just be calm and reason. It was like, okay, okay, you know, 
God's peace be with you. I hope that if when the time comes and, and she was still going, it was, I, I just had to say, have a nice day. I couldn't say anything. Um, we, we couldn't have a spiritual conversation because it was being misread and misunderstood. Uh, that's that's living in fear, by the way. Right? I think most Christians should be like, oh, if I was to die today, well, okay. I would stand I would stand in the presence of my Savior. What joy. But it's as though, you know, even those who profess Christ sometimes it's like, no, we we, we fear death, we we push it away. The other extreme of that is being nihilistic and just embracing it and running towards it for, with some sort of full-hearty desire um, for it. And, that, and that's never healthy either. But um, if we look at this text, I think what we see here is some truth that I hope balances us and brings us to some corrective elements regarding our view of angels and by association demons. And I hope that this will also encourage us as we engage in spiritual warfare. Now, first of all, let's talk about the presence and power of the angels. The presence and power of the angels. I've already said angels are real. Uh, angels are great. Okay, angels are powerful. They are present and they are powerful. They are great. But are they this great? I was, I was, at, a prayer, um, I was at an event where there were many Catholics present. and Some of them were and are friends of mine. The nature of the event meant that there was actually quite a bit of uh, violent opposition present. And a couple of people stormed this stage um, at this festival, and they disrupted the event with flares, and uh, it, it could have gotten a lot worse than it did, to be honest, but the, the police and security were seeking to deal with this situation. And a priest, meaning well, Sincere, but as we were talking about earlier today, sincerely wrong in his approach, I believe, took the microphone and urged people to join him in beseeching the archangel Michael. The prayer is well known by many, maybe. Uh, is anyone of a Catholic background here? Yeah, okay, okay, we have a, a, a couple of Catholic background, Roman Catholic background. Um, You'll be familiar with the prayer. Holy Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our safeguard against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. I have no problem with that line. May God rebuke the devil, we humbly pray. Uh, That's fine. Do you, Michael, O prince of the heavenly host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who wander through the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Is how the prayer ends. I'm not saying amen. Um, We'll come to that in a minute. Another prayer is offered to Gabriel. O blessed archangel Gabriel, we beseech thee, do thou intercede for us at the throne of divine mercy in our present necessities, that as thou didst announce to Mary the mystery of the incarnation, which we're entering that season of celebration, um, so through thy prayers and patronage in heaven we may obtain the benefits of the same and sing the praise of God forever in the land of the living. Now, why do people pray to the angels? There are, many, there are many answers, but we can say quite accurately that part of it has to do with the fact that angels are powerful. They are powerful. Part of it has to do with the fact that their presence is very real and in some cases tangible. 
We see in the scriptures, the cherubim, the seraphim, the living creatures, angels that are named. There, there are different tiers of angels. Uh, uh, we, we, we could spend, and there are whole books dealing with all of these tiers. We don't see them chronologued in that way in the Bible, so I'm, I'm not going to go there this evening. We can have that conversation on another occasion. But it's clear that these angelic beings, whether they are Cherubim, technically not angels, but angelic beings. Seraphim, again, technically not angels, but angelic beings. Or living creatures that are around the throne. Or angels, specifically. They are mighty ones who do God's word. They are present and they are powerful. If you do some study of what the Bible teaches about angels, you'll discover that they are used by God to guide, to guard to protect and to carry out his will, either solo, we see Gabriel and Michael, those were the two that we mentioned in, in those prayers, or in many cases, we see them as an angelic army. They're warriors, they're worshipers. They have been God's word bearers. Indeed, in many ways, God spoke to the prophets through these angels. We already saw in verse 2 of Hebrews 2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how we sh shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He spoke at the beginning of how long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And many times we see those prophets have encounters, very real, very tangible encounters with angelic beings and or angels. They're wonders of creation. They're greater than humans because we know that Jesus was for a little while made lower than the angels. Angels are greater than humans. They are spirit beings. And uh, you, you can't get away from recognizing that throughout the scriptures, they pack serious wow factor. Every time angels are encountered in scripture, the initial response is one of shock, of fear, of dread, of awe. In some cases, and, and I have to be a bit sympathetic and understand the tendency of our, our Roman Catholic friends to want to pray to Michael and want to pray to Gabriel because John the Apostle himself bows down and starts worshipping an angel who promptly tells him, stop doing that. You're not, you're not supposed to do that. They're powerful. They're spiritual. They're incredible. But it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Verse 5 of Hebrews 2 says, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So he then goes on to say, we see him now, verse, verse 9 says, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He is greater than, he is better than the angels. 
the cherubim. They were mysterious winged creatures who we first encounter in Eden. They play a large role in the structure and symbolism of the temple. They have a protecting and guarding role. They're attendants to God Almighty. But they're not better than Jesus. The Lord appoints them. He sends them. He uses them in His service. They are... After all, created beings with moral judgment and intelligence. They are not creators, they are created. In Luke 24, 39, we read, A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have, words of Jesus. Um, in Hebrews 1, 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So fundamentally, they are created spiritual beings, meaning that when there's a manifestation in the flesh, that manifestation is just that. It is an appearance of a spiritual being. It is not the same as one who is flesh and blood. They're powerful, but they are not all powerful. They're higher than humans in creation, but they are still subject to the Creator. You made Him, Jesus, for a little while lower than the angels. He is the one who is crowned with glory and honor. He is the one who is all-powerful. Angels are not all-powerful. In Psalm 91, verse 11, and it's repeated in Luke 4, verse 11, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Now this was... uh, Primarily focused on who? Can someone remind me? It's Jesus. It's it Jesus. And uh, do you remember how this passage is twisted when it comes to Jesus? Does anyone remember? Satan, after Jesus' baptism, takes, uh, well, the Spirit takes Jesus to the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, and Satan tempts him. And, and, and Satan uses this passage and says, Throw yourself off. The angels will be command that they're commanded, doesn't it? The passage say he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Show me your the Savior. If you're so great, do this. He's putting Jesus to the test. It's very critical. Jesus claims when when anyone says to you, "Where does Jesus claim to be God?" What does Jesus say to the devil? He says, "You." What does he say? He says. You shall not put your, the Lord your God to the test. There are people who say, oh, Jesus, Jesus never says, I am God. He says it right there to Satan. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here in, in Psalm 91, it's an incredible passage. And you know how um, Satan, one thing in spiritual warfare that you'll find is he always overextends himself. What he thinks he's going to accomplish is actually the very thing that leads about to his downfall and defeat. And time and again, you see that in Scripture. Always something meant for evil. Always something that seems to frustrate God's perfect plan and purpose. Always something that's destructive and, and that you look at and we say regularly, we can say that's satanic. That's demonic. Always he overextends himself. So he quotes this to Jesus. And yet he's quoting the very passage that signifies his doom. Verse 11 of Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up. Lest you strike your foot against a stone. Beware of the reality that Satan always likes to 
take God's word out of its context. He likes to cherry pick. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Reminiscent of that promise to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. You will trample on the lion and on the adder. The scriptures speak of the devil prowling around like a roaring lion, but he's defeated. He's looking for someone to devour, and yes, he succeeds in some cases, but he's defeated. He, he just leaves that, that passage out conveniently in that dialogue with Jesus. Now, they're warriors. You can see in um, Genesis 3.24, the uh, cherubim are used to drive out the man. Um, you can see in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11 um, through 12, also in 2 Kings chapter 6, very similar passages where we see angelic armies manifested. They are seen in a very powerful way. I encourage you to take note of those passages, uh, 2 Kings 2 and 2 Kings 6. In um, 2 Thessalonians 1 17, to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Angels are undeniably, without any question, warriors, and they're engaged in an ongoing cosmic Conflict. You can see this throughout the prophets, particularly in Daniel, where that spiritual warfare is highlighted in a crystal clear way. They're worshippers. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Psalm 148, 1 and 2 says. And there in Hebrews 1, 6, remind you again, when his, he brings the firstborn into the world, you remember the scene of the nativity, imagine the children, they're preparing this nativity play. Maybe there'll be some angelic representation, right? What do they do? They gather around glory to God in the highest and on earth peace with those whom he is pleased. Let all God's angels worship him, Hebrews 1.6 says. The baby in the manger worshipped by these powerful angels. They minister to and serve God's people, Hebrews 1 tells us. They are ministering servants. This, is, this doesn't change. They are, are not they all ministering servants sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. This is ongoing. Whether we realize it or not, they are there. And God uses them to accomplish his purpose and his will for his glory and our good. They guard and they guide, they war and avenge on God's behalf, and they worship. Now, on the flip side of this, we could talk more about it. It's, you know, there's historically in, uh, in Judaism, there are said to be 10 categories of angels, 10 different categories. And in uh, the, the realm of study called angelology in Christianity, uh, generally two of those are merged together. And so there are said to be nine orders of celestial beings. We can talk about that again 
this is kind of an extra biblical study, so we're not going there. We do need to talk about demons before we tie this up. But in talking about demons, let's, let's talk about the prince of demons and the chief of demons, Satan, Beelzebub, Lucifer. Lucifer, an angel of light. God, people sometimes say, oh, if God is so powerful, I've heard people say this, if God is so powerful, why did he create demons then? And it's, I think, generally meant to be a kind of got you moment. And it's like, well, God didn't actually create demons. He created beings that had power, that created, uh, he created beings that had uh, freedom of responsibility and, and choice and um, could do the right thing as well as the wrong. And what happens is Lucifer, the scripture says, um, he is drawn by this lust to be, as we were, like God. He sought to be God. And so he then brings us into this mess. At some point, we don't know when, but between um, the, the moment of creation, I believe, and um, the, the fall of man, we see Lucifer desires to ascend to Godhead. An impossibility. And so he is cast out along with we don't see that number in the scriptures, but the, the number that's generally given um, th- throughout Jewish and Christian tradition is a third of the angelic host. You see Archangel Gabriel and Archangel Michael, they're spoken of in that way. It said that Lucifer was another archangel, that there were three archangels, each corresponding to a respective member of the triune God. And, uh, and Lucifer... Lucifer fell with his angelic army. They're now known as demons. There's much that we don't know, but here's what we do know. And I want to remind you of this as you encounter spiritual warfare. I said earlier on that you need to be aware of your combatant and the one that you face. Satan is a tester. I tell you this, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. The Lord Jesus warns in Revelation, Satan is a liar. In John 8, 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So he is a liar and he is a murderer as well. He is a sinner. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 1 John 3, 8. Take note of these references. They will help you in those moments of spiritual battle when it's most intense. Satan is a thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy, John 10 10 says. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Satan is a destroyer. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
He's a warrior. You should not underestimate him, demean him, or blaspheme him, or deny his power. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He is a warrior, and he leads his troop of demonic warriors. He is a schemer. We are reminded that we should not let Satan outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. It means he is a master manipulator. We see it throughout the scriptures where he seeks to manipulate the truth. He takes God's word even and he tries to twist it in particular ways. Every lie has its element of truth. Satan is a tormentor. And that torment can come in mental, emotional, and physical ways. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1 through 10, he describes some of his sufferings that he's been going through. And he comes to this one that seems particularly personal. He doesn't talk about it. Is it a person? Some say it's a person. Is it a physical ailment? Some people think that. Is it mental or emotional? Some suggest that. What is it? We don't know. But he says, this thorn in the flesh is a messenger of Satan to torment me. So it's not theologically inaccurate for someone to view um, their ailment, their ongoing struggle as potentially a satanic distraction uh, or satanic tormenting um, element. We can be too quick to dismiss the fact that Satan is involved even in those elements of our lives. Satan is a possessor. Imagine you look at the disciples who were called apostles. Okay, they, they were a motley crew. Okay, they, 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 there was a terrorist, Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were these guys who would go cloak and dagger. The term cloak and dagger comes from their activities. They would go into crowded spaces wearing long gowns and hoods and would have um, apparatus um, think if you, I don't know if anyone plays video games, but um, uh, Assassin's Creed is inspired kind of by those assassins, by those zealots. They were Jewish terrorists against their Roman oppressors. And some would say, well, no, they, they weren't terrorists. They were freedom fighters. But that's always it, isn't it? One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And you just have to find the truth. What is truth and what is God's way? Well, Simon the Zealot was there. This group of fishermen who come across sometimes as singularly unlikable individuals. I mean, you know, there's, there's moments where you think, oh, these guys are great. And then you're thinking, oh, that's, that's really not, not on. And then uh, the, the childishness. And you think as you read, maybe if you're like me, you'll read some of the accounts of the conversations they have with Jesus, especially when they ask him for special places and perks in heaven. And you think, wow, what, what is going on there? And then where one of uh, two of these guys have their mom go to Jesus You think, what's happening with that? The reality is, actually, most of them were, um, in in our system, in our terminology, children. Apart from Peter, they were under 18. There was a particular tax particular tax that um, over 18s only had to pay. You'll remember a passage when Jesus is with the apostles and um, he opens a fish and there's a coin there that's enough for both him and for Peter to pay tax. And I used to think, wow, I wonder what the other apostles thought. 
He's not paying our tax. He's paying Peter's. But no, it's because, it's because Peter is an adult. He is over the age of 18. And in Roman law, they had a fairly similar setup as, as we do. So when you think, oh, that's really childish. Yes, because they were, they were adolescents. They were adolescents, and, and, and yet Jesus loved them. He trained them. He taught them. He discipled them. But all of that, Satan enters Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. You see it throughout the scriptures. You see people profess faith. They're baptized. They're walking, talking as if they're the Lord's to a degree. And you see it time and time again. You see... Thankfully, many continue, but there are many who for whatever motives they have, they profess Christ, but they don't possess Christ. And by God's grace, that's revealed. Satan is a possessor. He is a slanderer. He is an accuser, the accuser of the brethren. The Pharisees would speak of him as the ruler of demons in Matthew 9. He is spoken of as Beelzebul, which is, um, it can simultaneously be translated as Lord of the Flies or Dung. Um, he is Belial, which means vileness. He is spoken of as Abaddon, Napoleon, the destroyer. This is our combatant. You cannot approach him in a trifling, trivial manner. That's why you see these uh, sons of Siva. Does anyone know the sons of Siva? They're, they're an axe. Uh, it, it's a darkly comedic scene. You have these uh, sons of a Jewish exorcist. And they recognize this possessed individual. And they desire to... Um, show a measure of power. They desire to uh, see this man delivered. And so they think, well, this guy, Paul, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's Jewish and he's going around in the name of Jesus delivering people. So maybe if we, we can up our ante in exorcisms by using the same technique. And so they go to this man who is um, beleaguered by all of these demons and they seek to deliver him. They seek to free him from this possession in the name of Jesus, um, using Paul's name. And, and I, I have the picture ingrained in me of just kind of this, this image of this man having dealt with, I, I believe, demonically possessed people um, in, in our ministry and angel before some truly frightening stories that I won't go into at the moment. But the, the look in his eye between these seven sons, Jesus, I know. Paul, I've heard of. Who are you? And then I'm just, I, I zone out. I'm not seeing inside the house. I'm just seeing the street outside. And I'm hearing a ruckus going on inside. All, 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 all sorts of stuff flying around. And then suddenly out uh, opens the door. Uh, and these seven sons leave naked and wounded, as the passage says. Brutal. But they thought they could mess about. They thought they could approach the demonic in a trifling way. It's not to be done. Jesus urged prayer and fasting. 
It's something I encourage you to look into and study and apply. But we're we're not here because of angels, though we are thankful for angels and we're thankful for their ongoing presence and power and the way God uses them. There are moments that I cannot explain that I have sensed a powerful restraint, powerful presence, protecting, protecting, holding me back, keeping me from doing certain things that in one case in particular and another that comes to mind could have probably cost my life. We're not here today because of Satan. Definitely not here because of Satan. We're here today not because of the power and presence of the angels, not because of the power and presence of of Satan. We're here today because of the person and preeminence of the anointed. Christ, who is better. Christ is the revelation of God's word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by who? His son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And and as we've already read, he is over the angels. That means he is ruler over the angels. He is the revelation of God's word, but he is also the radiation of God's being. In verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He's revelation of God's word, radiation of God's being, and he is the redemption, the redemption of God's people. He's far better than the angels, greater than the angels. Tell me, he says, what, uh, what angel has the Father spoken the words? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Well, to, to, to which of the angels has the Father said that? He's altogether different from the angels. We see that those words spoken it's first of all there in Psalm 2-7. In Mark 1-11 at his baptism, you can read of it. And once again, Matthew 17-5 at his transfiguration where Jesus is joined by Moses and Elijah. What angel has the Father spoken to saying, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. When you encounter a Jehovah's Witness family member or a friend, ask them, what, what, what is this equating of Jesus with the angels? Look here. This has nothing. He's, not, he's altogether different than the angels. Which of the angels is spoken of as the Messiah, the anointed one of God? Which of the angels laid the foundations of the earth? Which of the angels is infinite and eternal, begotten, not created? Which of the angels can say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me? Which of the angels has said that he is the ruler over all forces, authorities, powers and rulers who says he has the keys of death and Hades in his hand? Which of the angels? None. One and one alone of whom such has been said, Jesus Christ. We are here today because of Jesus. We thank him for the angels. We ask him for strength and we stand in him against Satan and the demons. 
And when we pray, we pray to Him. We pray to Him alone. Because we are here looking to who Jesus is. God the Son made flesh, preeminent over all. We now offer our prayers and petitions as atoned people of God. We've spoken of the greater power of Christ who made purification for sins, providing atonement with God through His cross. In light of this, we have to recognize that praying to the Lord His way as scripture outlines, this is the only way. Worship of angels was one of the false doctrines being taught at Colossae. It's dealt with in Colossians 2, verse 18. In the book of Revelation, an angel warns John not to worship, not to worship himself. You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Throughout the Old Testament, examples of prayer were directed only toward God. The idea of praying to the angels was completely anathema. It was alien to them. In the New Testament, Jesus comes specifically to be mediator and intercessor. And in instructions on prayer, both Jesus and his apostles indicate that man can and should and must direct their petitions to God as our Heavenly Father. We're never encouraged a single time to seek or petition any other spiritual being, much less any man. So, offer your prayers to God. He is more powerful. Why would you settle for one of his servants when you can go to him directly? Why would you settle for one of those who is under his command when you can go directly to the commander, which Hebrews is all about? There's one word that sums up Hebrews. It's better. Jesus is better than all of this other stuff. He's he's better than the angels. He is the one mediator between God and yourself. He is the one who has enabled us to with confidence enter into the holy place. Hebrews 10 says. And having done that, we come and we honor him. We worship him. Far above all power, all authority. Because there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we can be saved. Jesus is king and I will extol him. Give him the glory and honor his name. He reigns on high, enthroned in the heavens. Word of the Father exalted for us. O Holy One, our hearts do adore you. Thrilled with your goodness, we give you our praise. Angels in light with worship surround him. Jesus, our Savior, forever the same. Father, we come to you just now and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for how you've revealed yourself to us. Thank you that we now have a far greater, a better revelation than even that that the angels brought. We have this sure and certain salvation revealed in Jesus Christ. Help us not to neglect it. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.